0: All right, we're on. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you guys this morning. My name is John Larson, one of the four pastors of this church, and I am blessed to have studied God's Word this week, to preach the gospel to you this morning, to serve you in that way. Well, I have fond memories of a family trip that we took to Washington, D.C. when I was in middle school. Uh, that's me on the far left, uh, over there, and um, it was a lovely trip, getting together with family, my family, and cousins, and uh, one of the highlights, besides seeing all the, the monuments and that sort of thing, was um, the discovery of some sunglasses. And so we were in front of us, or was a store, actually it was a table vendor, and he was selling these sunglasses. These amazingly cool sunglasses for only $10. The name brand guaranteed that I will be cool, which is the perfect solution for a middle schooler who is craving some pure acceptance. But it didn't take long for signs of disappointment to surface with these sunglasses that I purchased. Um, First of all, the stiff material of the sunglasses uh, pinched on the temples, resulting in a bit of a headache. But it was worth enduring because they looked so good, and they were so cheap. But it didn't take long even for further problems to arise. Soon the paint started flaking off of the glasses, and then the logo was no longer um, visible. standard, and so it resulted in strained eyes in the sun. And last of all, the hinges broke. Actually, one at a time. So I tried to wear it with one of the wings, but finally they just weren't worth wearing at all. It turns out that these were imposters. They have a name, these false oak leaves They're called fake leaves. <laughs> And I've since learned not only these telltale signs of fake leaves, but I've also learned the origin of Oakley glasses. Let me educate you. Here is where real Oakley sunglasses come from. They come from a factory in Foothill Range, California. It's 20 miles southeast of Anaheim in Orange County. This is where the real stuff comes from. This is where the good stuff comes that works, and it doesn't wear out. And so sometime after this, I invested multiple months of my youth salary into purchasing these. The substance, the Oakley's, they were high-quality material. These Fagley's, they were so cheap. The effect, stylish UV protection. For the Figley's, just disappointment. Now, you're probably wondering where I'm going with all this. This comparison is a rather perfect illustration for our passage today. Um, You may or may not know, but we are in the book of Galatians. Perry started it last week. And Paul is writing to some believers who live in Galatia. It's a church that he planted perhaps one, maybe two years before he wrote the letter. And in that short period of time, they have already gone astray. They've been swayed by some false teachers who came in told them to stop trusting in Paul and stop believing the gospel, the gospel of grace that he preached to them. Instead of the gospel of grace, they were encouraging a form of works-based gospel, which really was not good news, and it was especially not good news for the men. Whereas Romans is a book that tells us what the gospel is, Galatians, in this passage specifically, tell us what the gospel is not. Contrasting Paul's message with the false gospel of the false teachers. So in today's passage, similar to the sunglasses, Paul reveals the origin and the effect of the true gospel. That's where we're going to go. This is what we're going to end up covering today. The origin and the effect of the gospel, but surprisingly, not so much the substance. Normally, when we talk about the gospel, we're often referring to the substance of the gospel or the truth of the gospel, not so much where it came from or the effect that it has. And so today we're not even going to talk about that. We're not, there's nothing in the passage that mentions um, Christ crucified for sinners or that it's by grace, through faith, not by works. That's not, that's not in the passage. Um, that will be addressed next week in the beginning of Galatians 2. But today we're going to cover some unique aspects of the gospel that you may or may not have thought about quite a bit. And so we're going to revisit this. We're going to fill it out by the end of the sermon, Um, and so we're going to have a better understanding of this. So let me tell you specifically where we're going, and then I'm going to have you pull out the Bible in front of you. Here's my sermon summary. Against the accusation of false teachers, Paul defends before the Galatians his gospel as being from God, not man, with two proofs. Like the Galatians, we today, we can gain greater confidence that we present the true gospel, I mean the gospel of God, by understanding Paul's proofs. So that's where we're going. So um, how about we start by beginning in prayer, let's bow our heads, and then we're going to grab the Bible and learn from it. Pray with me. God Almighty, we recognize you here. This morning, we want to meet with you. Thank you that you are alive today, that you rose your son Jesus from the dead, that he's seated at the right hand of your throne. And today, we want to behold the resurrected Jesus through this passage of Scripture We want to walk away with a better understanding of the gospel, with a greater confidence that it's true and assurance that will enable us to endure the suffering and sacrifice that is befitting for the gospel in this broken world. Help us to dial in in this moment. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would push away the distractions, that you would guide us into truth and give us an intent. Focus and gaze upon Jesus through your word. Have your way with us this morning. We open up our hearts to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Galatians 1. It's in the Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 972. 972 in the House Bible. And starting in verse 11, let's read the whole passage. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former way of life, uh, former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I'm writing to you before God. I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. This is God's word. By way of heads up, we're going to break this passage into five chunks today, and we're going to look at the first chunk, which is Paul's main point, and then four sections that validate his point. His first couple of verses we're going to look at, it's his main point. Paul doesn't preach man's gospel. He preaches God's gospel. And then surprisingly, Paul validates that or he grounds it not in theology like you would expect. He grounds it in his own story. You would think he would say, okay, you know, um, anyone who preaches another gospel, anathema. Why can I say that? Well, uh, because Jesus is the only way and because there's no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. He doesn't go into theology. He goes into history, which is really fascinating. So after he makes his main point, he goes into history, four sections, and um, we're going to look at a map just to do this. Oh, no, I should tell you his main point. His main point is that um, he doesn't preach man's gospel, and these are his two proofs that we're going to see today. We'll revisit them at the end. They'll make more sense then. His transformed life and his years of independent ministry. Um, So he makes his main point, and then we're going to follow the course of his life, four different sections, four different time periods of his life, and how that proves his point that he's not preaching man's gospel. So we're going to start in Jerusalem, we're going to go to Damascus and Arabia, we're going to go down to number three, back to Jerusalem, and then we're going to head up north into what is modern-day Turkey, but then was Cilicia and Syria. Um, so that's where we're headed. So let's go to that first section and see Paul's main point that he doesn't preach man's gospel. This is from verses 11 and 12. I'll review them. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when, when Paul says to the Galatians, the gospel that was preached by me, he is referring to the time that he visited during his first missionary journey. Something that he did alongside Barnabas and probably occurred just a year or two before the writing of this letter. And so he went off from Antioch, and you can kind of see in the upper center part of the image there, that region is called Galatia, includes includes Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then he boomeranged back through the cities. So he's referring to the time he preached the gospel. They received it. Paul had to, you know, for a lot of these places, he had to skip town because there's opposition. So that the time. He's talking about when he preached the gospel. And he's saying it's not man's gospel, meaning that whatever these false teachers are saying, that's man's gospel. Paul, on the other hand, said he didn't receive the gospel. This gospel, it wasn't taught him. Rather, it was revealed to him. He had a revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is his main point. It's not man's gospel. Let's go to the first part of Paul's personal history, in which he grounds why he can say this so strongly. This in verse thirteen and fourteen. I'll review it. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was van- advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. I'm sorry, fathers. Paul provides us with a snapshot of his former life. He's giving us a contrast of his transformed life and his transformed life purpose in the next three sections. And so don't drift. This part is important. Pay attention to what Paul's former life looked like. I'll give you an overview. This comes from various sections in the book of Acts. So though Paul was... um, he was born in Tarsus, which is up in Cilicia. We'll see that on the map a little bit. Um, He actually grew up um, in Jerusalem, and he was taught by a famous rabbi named Gamaliel, and he was trained as a Pharisee, the strictest sect within Judaism, one that has a conservative approach to Bible interpretation and was extremely zealous. Now, the Galatians knew of Paul's former life. He told them about them, and actually it seems like Everybody knows about Paul's former life. The Galatians knew, everyone knew. And Paul gives his testimony multiple times in the book of Acts. And so we gain these clues from his different testimonies of what this former life looked like. Let me give you some examples. It included traveling to foreign cities to arrest Jewish Christians in synagogues and bringing them back to Jerusalem for punishment. Paul arrested not just Christian men, he also arrested Christian women. Paul uh, attempted to force Christians to renounce their faith in Christ. Paul used his power as a religious leader to vote in favor of the death penalty for those who had converted to Christianity. He did this with Stephen in Acts 7, and he also did it with others as well. Paul beat and persecuted Christians. Paul even persecuted them to the death. Talk about extremely zealous. Oh my goodness. It's hard to imagine someone who would be more opposed to Jesus Christ than Paul. He's not ambivalent. He's not indifferent. Paul is violently and passionately anti-Jesus. So that's Paul's former life. That's important contrast. It, lays, it gives our contrast for the rest of the sections. So let's move on to the, section, uh, the second part of his history. It's his conversion and in his initial years. Let's read a couple verses. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, more, more to come, This is fancy language, an important language, for Paul's conversion moment, the moment we know as um, his Damascus Road experience. Let me review the story with you from Acts chapter 9. I'll read it to you. You don't have to follow along in the Bible, but you're welcome to. It will not be on the screen. Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, that's uh, uh, another name for him, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest, this is in Jerusalem, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which is 130, 160 miles away, by the way, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. Jesus then um, speaks to a disciple named Ananias, and he gives Ananias some instruction. Here's my paraphrase. It starts with Jesus speaking to him. Go to straight, Straight Street. Yes, Lord. Go to the house of Judas there. Yes, Lord. A man there has had a vision of you laying hands on him to regain sight. Wow. Super cool. Yes, Lord. His name is Saul. Great. Of Tarsus. No, Lord. No. Why is Ananias hesitant? Because he knows Paul's reputation. Everybody knows Paul's reputation. Ananias has heard of the persecution in Jerusalem, and he even knows why Paul is coming to Damascus. He knows about his mission. This is the last guy Ananias expected. He would have never guessed this to be the case. And as an aside, this is the part of the study um, that the Holy Spirit really brought to to my mind this week that really applied to me. Now I share why. Remember, Paul is so anti-Jesus. No one saw this coming. But Jesus can save anyone. I've recently grown disheartened um, considering people in my life who are far from God. And part of my disheartening feeling was that I had made conclusions about the end of the story already. That they were too far from God to ever get saved. But it's not the end of the story until it's the end of the story. Now, I'm not a universalist. I'm not trying to say that everybody repents and receives Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is don't discount what God can do. God saved Paul of Tarsus, period. This story reminds us that God can save the most unlikely of people, those we consider too hard and too far from God. Amen? Amen. All right, back to the story. Ananias is um, told that Paul has a new life purpose. He's going to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles and others. And so Ananias obeys Jesus and boldly goes to Paul. Paul. And miraculously, when he prays for him, laying hands on him, Paul is able to see again. But perhaps even more surprising, Ananias does not teach Paul the gospel. Ananias calls Paul brother. Paul has already become a follower of Christ. Because Paul had already received the gospel through his revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he calls him brother, and he's baptized. Let's look what happens next in these next verses. I'll I'll read them again. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So the narrative from Acts 9 tells us next that Paul, once he's in Damascus, he immediately began preaching that Jesus was the son of God and that he was the Christ boldly in the synagogues. It didn't take any time at all. And the listeners are rather confused. Bro, did you change teams? But it wasn't funny. They were angry, so angry that they plotted to kill Paul. And so when he caught wind of this, he had to skip town And so, humbly, he was placed in a basket, lowered through a hole in the wall of Damascus, where he then went from there to Arabia, which was to the east, and then returned to Damascus later. Paul is very clear to the Galatians at this point. He did not consult with anyone to verify his gospel. Paul does not check in with the apostles at Jerusalem and compare notes. We know that he went to Arabia, came to Damascus. That was three years. So for three years, Paul has been boldly preaching the gospel he received directly from Jesus Christ without comparing notes with anyone or receiving the gospel from them. Okay, so we've looked at this section. Let's go to the next one. Let's see Paul's visit, his first visit to Jerusalem after becoming a Christian, Galatians 1, 18. I'll reread it so you're fresh on it. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to to visit um, Cephas, remember that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I'm writing to you before God. I do not lie. Okay, so we're going to Jerusalem. And this next episode might seem rather unimportant to you. You might look at those verses like, do we really need that in the Bible? Like if this disappeared, would it make any difference at all? Yes, absolutely. Um, And I'm going to show you why. This was a shocking detail to the Galatians and their false teachers that Paul concludes it. It's such so strong. He concludes it. Remember he said, in what I'm writing to you, I do not lie. So Paul's Paul's making a really important point here that he even has to back it up. Now, certainly we can presume that the false teachers were spreading distrust of Paul to the Galatians. They're trying to erode his, their trust in him and also their trust in the message that he was preaching. And so we can, um, so it's, an, it's important to know this about this brief episode, it's three years later. Let's note three noteworthy things that we see from here. Here's the first thing. The purpose of Paul's visit. What does it say the purpose of his visit was? It was to visit Peter. Paul went to Jerusalem to visit Peter, to get to know him. One might expect Paul to say, I went to compare notes with the Jerusalem church leaders. Nope. He went to visit Peter. Secondly, notice the lack of inter- in, um. Interaction with the other apostles. If Paul felt it necessary to check his gospel, then certainly he would have said, hey, I'm coming to town. Get all the influential leaders together because we need to have an important conversation. He doesn't do that. He meets Peter and spends time with them, and he has perhaps a passing acquaintance with James. Those are the two that he saw, but he didn't gather the whole quorum of the apostles, And thirdly, notice the brevity of this trip. In the grand scheme of the timeline we're talking about, we're going to be talking about somewhere around 14 years today, Paul was only in Jerusalem for 15 days. Just 15 days. Just a very brief time if he were trying to cross-pollinate and check his gospel. What else do we notice? Just like in Damascus, Paul's preaching the gospel boldly. He goes to Jerusalem, and he wants to get involved in the ministry. And so he actually likes to dispute. He likes to preach the gospel to the Greek-speaking Jews. They're called Hellenists. And so Paul's disputing with them. He's having a ball, just proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And just like in Damascus, they don't like his message. And there's a death threat on his head, and he's got to skip town, And the disciples find a way to get him out of town. So that's all. It's just 15 short days and he got kicked out of town. Uh, He had to escape. So that's the Jerusalem visit. Now let's look at the final section where Paul goes to the north and see what's going on there and why that proves the point that he wasn't preaching man's gospel. Galatians 1, 21. He says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So let's look at that map to better understand this, to make sure we know this. So Paul was down here in the lower part. Let's see if this works. Yes, awesome. He was down here in Jerusalem and then they have him skip down and he heads up here to these two regions up to the north. Um, And this next period of time is much longer. 15 days in Jerusalem. Now we're talking about eight years spent up here in the north. Paul says that he went to Syria and Cilicia. These are two different regions that are in modern-day Turkey. And Paul actually went to Cilicia first and to Syria second, but he likely says Syria first because there's more prominent um, ministry that occurred there. So Paul returns to his birthplace of Tarsus, his hometown in um, Cilicia, and he's still continuing preaching the gospel. He's just not getting killed for doing it. Um, and during this time, happening in parallel, something else happens. Some unnamed dudes, some believers, travel to the city of Antioch. That's in Syria. That's over here. And um, not connected with Paul, not connected to the Jerusalem apostles. They arrive in Antioch and they start preaching the gospel, specifically to to Greek-speaking Jews, so to the Hellenists. And oh my goodness, God just opens up a door for the gospel to go bananas. It is just people are getting saved left and right, and it's more than they can handle. And so word reaches the apostles down in Jerusalem. They hear about it. And they think, man, we've got to do something about this. So they choose a man named Barnabas. Barnabas was a good man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they said, Barnabas, go up to Antioch and help figure out what's going on. And we need you to bring some oversight to this just exploding church plant in Antioch. So Barnabas heads up to Antioch from Jerusalem. It's quite a journey. And he gets there and he is just thrilled. He is so encouraged seeing what God is doing there. And, um, and he just tells him, hey, guys, stick with the faith. Like, stay true to Jesus Christ. Don't abandon him. Um, let's keep this thing going. And, um, and he does that, and then more people get saved. It's kind of nuts. And so Barnabas has a, a good problem on his hand. He's got way too many people to care for brand new believers and lost people to reach with the gospel. And so he, you know, I'm just imagining him thinking and praying, man, what am I going to do about this? I need some help. I need somebody who grew up as a Jew, somebody who's become a believer, somebody who would be good at reasoning and reaching these Greek-speaking Jews. Man, who could I? Paul, I need Paul. That's exactly who I need. And so he journeys from Antioch to Tarsus. That's a bit of a journey too. And somehow in this city of Tarsus, he's got to find Paul. And he manages to find Paul. He presents his proposal, come to Antioch. I need you um, as a gospel partner. And so uh, Paul agrees. And he joins him and they they go over there to Jerusalem. And man, they are just hitting it off. They're like Batman and Robin, gospel partners, just going nuts with the gospel. And Paul gets there, and more people keep getting saved. And they're having to care for the new believers and bring structure and order and oversight to this growing church. And they're just having a blast doing ministry, you know? Um, and, then, so, and then after this, there's a famine in Jerusalem, so Barnabas and Paul um, return there; they bring money that they've collected to bring to um, the believers in in Jerusalem. There, the Jewish believers, and that will actually be next week's passage. Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, Galatians two. What will happen when Paul returns to Jerusalem for the second visit? Bum bum bum. Come out, come next week, and you can find out when Aaron preaches it. But let's notice what Paul goes on to say in Galatians one. And he's actually, he's up here, but he's talking about another church. He says this, and I was still unknown um, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. It's been at this point, maybe 11, 12 years since Paul's Damascus conversion moment of Jesus. And the growing church congregation of Jerusalem and nearby, that's what it means when it says the Judean church, they've never met this guy. They've never been in the same room, having a church gathering, hearing him, hearing him preach, breaking bread together. That's never happened. It's totally fascinating. And Paul's been doing ministry this whole time in parallel without ever cross-pollinating his gospel. And this says this: They were only hearing it said, "He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once to tried to destroy." And this is really cool. Paul is hundreds of miles away from them. He's hundreds of miles away, and they know two things about Paul. For one, he's preaching. Remember, Paul's preaching everywhere he goes. He's always boldly preaching Christ as the Son of God and the Christ. But they're also learning that his whole way of life has changed. He's gone from being a persecutor of Christianity to being a preacher of Christianity. So even though they're hundreds of miles away, they know what Paul's doing. He's preaching Christ. But secondly, notice that they identify that he's preaching their same gospel. Why do I say that? Where does it say it in the text? Notice those words, preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So whatever Paul was preaching and whatever was preached in Jerusalem for the early church, they said these are the same. Apples to apples, Paul's doing the same thing, even though he didn't receive his gospel from men. And then finally, they glorified God because of me. They're so grateful about the report. They glorified God because of Paul's conversion. And this verse is such an understatement. Imagine the elation that would break out in this church when they hear that this violent persecutor, their worst opponent has now turned to their side. Jesus, their worst opponent, is now on their side. Paul's changed teams. He's gone from their intimidating opponent to their strong teammate. Oh man, they must have been so thrilled with the sense that God was real. God was working in their day, in their life. So now that we've covered this passage, let's review it. And remember our whole point was to prove Paul's point. Remember what it was? Paul had two proofs that he wasn't preaching man's gospel. Here's the summary. His transformed life pers- purpose from persecutor to preacher and his years of ministry independent of the Jerusalem church. I'll show it to you really quickly on the map. So remember back um, back in the first part, his transformed life purpose, when he's in Damascus, he starts preaching right away even though he's threatened with death. While he was in Galatia, remember, he had years of um, ministry, and yet he hadn't consulted with the Jerusalem apostles. Let's look at the next place. He went to Jerusalem. What's he doing? He's boldly preaching the gospel, even though he's threatened with death. And what else? Why was he, he there? He didn't get all the apostles together. He just went to visit Peter. Yeah, and he, he made acquaintance with James too. But the trip was very brief. And then lastly, Paul goes up north. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's having a super fruitful ministry that moves into Antioch. And even though he's far away, the Judean church knows. He's changed teams. He's on our side. He's a bold preacher. Okay. So now it feels like the end of the sermon. We see that Paul... Didn't receive his gospel from the apostles, but he spent a good chunk of time, 12, maybe actually 14 years, without any interaction regarding his content. But I want to ask this question, because I always love to ask this question. So what? So what? Why does that matter? Does that even matter that Paul didn't receive his gospel? Like, Would it be a big deal if Paul had just gotten his gospel from Peter? Peter was a genuine follower of Jesus. He was, he was the rock. Would it actually have made a difference to the Galatians in us if Paul had gotten his gospel in a different way? Yes, and let me explain why. The false teachers were trying to steer the Galatians away from the true gospel and away from Paul. And they were grounding their message... And their, um, of their message, their grounding it, their authority came from their um, connection to influences in Jerusalem. They boasted about the influential people they knew from Jerusalem. They came up from Jerusalem and saying, hey, we know so-and-so, and this is the message that they're saying. They were name-dropping. So they were really excited to say, we got this directly from Jerusalem, directly from the bigwigs, the influential guys. But Paul, on the other hand, he surprisingly makes the opposite point. He shows how little interaction he had with the Jerusalem leaders, anyone influential there. Why does Paul do that? Why does Paul downplay his connections? Here's the reason why. Paul's authority of his message doesn't lie in the authority of the people in Jerusalem. He doesn't need to mention them. His authority comes from the person he heard it from, the resurrected Jesus Christ. You can't get any higher than that. And so Paul downplays his connections in Jerusalem so that he can magnify the fact that he got it directly from Jesus Christ, and that is the final authority. Isn't that neat? Now, how does this matter to us today? All this Bible talk, does this really make a difference for us Now, I said before, this passage is intended to increase increase our confidence that today you and I have the true gospel, something you can bank your life and your eternity on, that it's absolutely true. Here's how this makes a difference for us today. In both Jewish law and in modern law, a strong case is built by having multiple corroborating witnesses. When you have two independent witnesses... They haven't spoken with each other. They experience the same event and they give you the same testimony of what happened. That is a strong case in a court of law. In God's wisdom, you maybe have never thought about this before, God provided two independent witnesses, as it were, that the message of the resurrected Jesus Christ is the one true message. He did it in this way. He had this group over here, the 11 apostles, and independently, Paul, an apostle as one untimely born, both beheld the resurrected Christ. Both, while boldly preaching the gospel, faced persecution and, for many, death for their testimony that Jesus was resurrected and that his message was true. Two independent witnesses preaching the same message. They're willing to suffer and even face death for their testimony This is pretty solid proof. I like how 17th century theologian and mathematician Blaise Pascal put it when he famously said this, I believe witnesses who have their throats cut. This was the case for Paul and the apostles. All of them except John were put to death on account of their testimony that they saw the resurrected Christ, that his message was the real one. There is not a defensible explanation for the rapid spread of the gospel as well as its enduring existence today, apart from the fact that Paul and the Jerusalem apostles each saw the resurrected Jesus and gave their lives for the spread of his message. So whether today you are a believer in Jesus or not, these proofs ought to increase your confidence that what we have today is the true gospel not man's gospel. So speaking of the true gospel, let's loop back to the beginning. Remember these? If your good news is flaking out, it's probably not the real deal. The good news is so good, it even rescues us from thinking that brand name sunglasses give us acceptance. And instead, it offers us a better acceptance, one we don't have to perform to get. Here's the chart I promised that we would fill out. We talked about the origin and the effect of the gospel. Let's go with those false teachers. We'll go backwards. The origin of their gospel, it's from man. It's not from God. The authority didn't rest with Jesus, the resurrected king. It it was rooted in man, in some leader, some influential person. Paul, it came from God. He saw Jesus. Um, The effect, man, false gospels are so disappointing they so overpromise and underdeliver so paul wanted to keep the galatians from that he wanted to rescue them from a horrible life now and from hell if they refused to receive the good gospel paul's gospel in his life it was a transformed life purpose notice that paul didn't mention how much his morality changed he didn't say wow man i used to cuss all the time and now I only cuss when it's like a really bad moment. (laughs) He doesn't mention his morality in his testimony. He's emphasizing his total change life purpose. I used to be anti-Jesus. My goal was persecuting and killing Christians. Now, I live to know Christ and to make him known. How about you? Is that your life purpose? To know Christ, to make him known at any cost? I didn't get to talk about this because it wasn't in the passage. Aaron and others will cover in subsequent weeks. But the content of the message, the false teachers were adding works to the gospel. Hey, you need to trust in God, but you also need to do these certain things. For Paul, his message was a message of grace. You receive the Lord Jesus by grace. You don't do anything to earn it, to deserve it, to add to it. It's completely Jesus, him and him alone. Now, if you haven't received this gospel, I exhort you, you need to do so today. It's truthfulness, it's validated in history, its origin is from God, its message is one of grace, its effect is not disappointment, but a transformed life purpose and eternal life. If this is something you want, you don't need to taint the message by cleaning up your life first and getting better first, just come as you are, with nothing to impress God with, Just come with your trust. Decisively change what you think will get you to heaven, what life is about. You need to get rid of your ex-good news, break up with it, and believe that Jesus will forgive you and save you and transform your life. And If you want to do that, I encourage you to talk with the person you came with or find me. Let's talk about it. Ben, you can come on up. I want to do just one more thing. I want to give a couple questions for us today. That are in the same um, theme as this message today. They're meant to be introspective questions that are a litmus test that show you whether you're believing the gospel of God or whether you're believing man's gospel. Perry covered some great examples of some of the last week of some of the major religions, the false teachings of today. And it's helpful for us to know we want to avoid those, but also there are subtle false gospels that each one of us, we're, be- we're, um, we're tempted to believe, and we might not even realize it. And so I want to give you these, not intended to crush you, not intended to just break you in conviction, but rather to point you to true hope and to point you to the true gospel, because that's where life is. So here are my three questions that you can consider, whether today or following to see whether you believe God's gospel or man's gospel. Here's the first. Do others around you notice the transformed purpose of your life after believing this gospel? Everyone knew of Paul's old reputation, but after it changed, even people up in Cilicia and Syria were hearing the report. Yeah, Paul's life has totally changed. The same for your life. Maybe extended family, friends, neighbors, co-workers... Have they caught wind that your life purpose is to know Christ and to make him known? Have they seen that? I want to encourage you. Maybe you might be struggling with your life purpose. Maybe you're wondering, man, why am I here? I'm really dis- disappointed. I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm just busy spinning the wheels. Here's one step that you can, I encourage you to do today. encourage you to come to the perspectives course today at 2 p.m. It's upstairs it's in the fellowship room it's free. And you can check it out this week. And I've gone through the course twice. I've been very inspired hearing the stories of what God is doing around our world today. Not just 2,000 years ago when he saved Paul, but today. In our life, the resurrected Christ is changing lives around this planet. And so if you're struggling with your purpose, check it out. Come at 2 o'clock, no charge. Get some free inspiration um, for your life purpose. How about this second question here? Is what you believe something worth sacrificing, something worth suffering for? That's how you can tell if it's Jesus' gospel or man's gospel. False, False gospels leave us disappointed. They leave us cowardly. They don't hold up under the weight of life's trials and challenges. Only the true gospel gives us the motivation to make sacrificial life decisions for Jesus and his kingdom. Unpopular decisions that might cost you money, decisions that might cut into your time, your comfort, your safety, or your reputation. The true gospel is worth sacrificing and suffering for. Here's my last one. Do you believe God could save the most far from God loved one in your life? You remember this is a thing that the Holy Spirit hit me with this week and changed my thinking and brought hope. If you believe that, keep trusting, keep praying. The story's not over until the story's over. And God saved Paul of Tarsus. So let's use this next song, this last song, as an extended meditation that the true gospel is something we're sacrificing for. We're gonna sing these words together. For the cross of Christ I give, all for which I have to live. To my death, Lord, I would go to walk on this bloodstained road. So let's pray and sing. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you revealed yourself to Paul. We're so grateful that you gave us the real gospel, the one that can hold up under suffering and sacrifice. Help us as we sing this song. We just invite you to guide our thoughts and how you want us to take in this gospel message, how you want us to walk away different and apply it. And so meet us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.